0: Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. It's great to see you today out in uh, TV land. And uh, let me just say, just a reminder, stay tuned to the very end of the service because we have some really important information about uh, when we're gonna reopen for public worship services. So you'll wanna stay tuned for that. I wanna begin this morning by reading today's passage of scripture. And that's John chapter 12, verses 27 to 36. John 12, 27 to 36. We're at the very end of Jesus' public ministry. Jesus now knows that he's just a few days away from being arrested and tried and crucified. And he says in verse 27, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Come, Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear your voice in this word today. We thank you that your word is not an idle word, but it is a word that gives life. So, reveal to us how to apply what we study today in our lives in this coming week. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. Now, if you've been keeping up with our FG Nightlies, you might have caught episode 34 last Wednesday. Matt Rexford interviewed me in my office, what he called the inner sanctum, and uh, he did this rapid fire speed round of mostly pointless questions. And one of the questions he asked was, what TV shows was I walk, uh, am I watching um, during this uh, corona crisis? And uh, I sheepishly confessed that I was watching old reruns of uh, Gunsmoke, black and white reruns. I'm very picky. It's the 30-minute thir- shows that I'm watching from the 50s and the early 60s. But uh, that's not all that I've been watching. I've also been watching The Last Dance, an ESPN documentary about the glory days of Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. And I tell you, as I sit there and I watch old footage from the 80s and 90s, I am once again amazed at Michael Jordan's talent. Not, not taking anything away from Pippen and Rodman and Kerr and, and the others and the Bulls too, 3 Pete championships, but there's no question that Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player uh, ever. Now, um, there are a lot of guys, maybe, who measure 6'6 and weigh 220, and and there are other guys who can dunk from the three-point line, but none of them can make it look as good as Michael Jordan. Uh, Especially when you watch this in slow motion. I mean, you realize that this shot was his crowning glory. Nobody had ever seen anything like it, and that earned him the nicknames, uh, his Airness and uh, Air Jordan and a multi-million dollar Nike contract. But uh, when you think of basketball and you think of glory, you think of Michael Jordan. Now, this passage here in John 12, chapter 12 is about Glory. If you look back to verse 23, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And you can draw a line straight down from verse 23 to verse 28 where Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. And the Father responds, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. But the question is, what is glory. What does Jesus mean when he says, the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified? What is he asking the Father to do when he prays, Father, glorify your name? And what does the Father mean when he says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again? And here's the biggie, like, what does it matter? I mean, glory just sounds like one of those overstuffed theological words that really doesn't have much relevant to daily life, right? I mean, what do you think about when you think about glory? I mean, maybe it's Michael Jordan or some other person who's achieved something monumental, or you might think about something like uh, the Grand Canyon. Years ago, Karen and I went to the Grand Canyon with Jose and Michelle Alvarez after we had finished up a family life Weekend to Remember Marriage Conference in Scottsdale, Arizona. And before we came back home, we rented a car and we drove to the Grand Canyon. Now, Jose and Michelle had been there before, so they told us to close our eyes. And they led us up to the edge. And then they told us to open our eyes. And I'm telling you, it literally knocks the breath out of you. I mean, we gasp. Now, no picture can do the Grand Canyon justice. You you look at that picture, as beautiful as it is, and you can appreciate the beauty. But when you're there in person, you experience the beauty and awe. Glory is something that you experience. Like when you're watching The Last Dance and you watch MJ in motion, you smile. And you shake your head in unbelief. You feel it. You experience the glory of it. Because glory is not just words, it's wonder. Glory is not just an event, it's an experience. So, no, the glory of God is not just theological jargon. It's, it's something you experience. It's something that moves you. Uh, it moves you to worship. It moves you to take action. So it is extremely relevant in daily life. You see, the biblical word glory and the English word matter both originally meant physical heaviness or weightiness. So when you talk about the glory of the Grand Canyon or uh, the glory of Air Jordan, you're talking about something that's, that's weighty, that has significance, that's totally unique, something that matters. And here's where it intersects your life and mine. Everybody wants glory. Everybody is after glory. Some of you, in fact, are burnt out in your search for glory. Now, you don't say it that way. I mean, you don't say, I want glory, or I'm out for glory, or or maybe you do. I I, uh, come to think of it, I I remember uh, in high school, I went out for JV football, and my dad was kind of surprised, and he asked me why I wanted to play football, and I smiled and I said, for the glory of it. I want the glory, Uh, meaning I wanted people to notice me, uh, especially the cheerleaders. We're all seeking glory. We're all star for it, meaning everybody needs to know they matter. They matter to someone. You need to know that. You need to know that you matter to someone. Now, some of you think that the way I'll matter to someone is through a relationship. Others of you may think uh, the way that I'm going to matter is through achieving something, That matters. But we're all desperate to know that we matter, that we make a difference. Some of us look at people that we think uh, have made it in love or relationships or achievement, and we kind of feel hollow inside. We envy those people. They are people of substance, of significance. These are people that matter. But if you could climb in their skin, like when you read their biographies, you find that they're just as conflicted as you. They, too, are consumed with doubts. Do I really matter? Does what I do really matter? Am I doing anything of lasting significance? Will anybody remember me? Again, even though you might not use the word, everybody is after glory. So what we're talking about today is extremely practical. Now, let me set the context here. Uh, as I said, verse 23 connects directly to verse 28 to highlight this theme of glory, but we've got to pull back and get an even bigger picture. And that is that our passage today, John 12, 27 to 36, is directly connected to what comes before, John 12, 20 to 26, the passage that we looked at two weeks ago. These two passages are connected. Both of them, both of the stories took place the Monday after Palm Sunday. And if you were with us online two weeks ago, you'll remember that after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, a group of Greeks came wanting to see Jesus. And somehow at that moment, uh, Jesus is reminded of why he really came. Somehow at that moment, he knows that the time of his death for our sins has come. Jesus knows that he has not come for the nation of Israel alone. Uh, He has come for the Greeks as well. He's come to draw all nations, all people groups to himself. So he immediately begins to talk about his hour to be glorified. Now, Now, when he uses that word glorified, the crowd thinks he's saying, the time has come for me to claim my throne and crush our Roman enemies. The time has come for a political revolution. But he's actually saying the time has come for my crucifixion. The time for me to die and be raised from the dead and return to my Father in heaven has come. But the main thing here is the hour of his glory is the cross. The hour of his glory is the cross. So how did Jesus feel about what lies before him? Look at verse 27. He says, now is my soul troubled. Now is my soul troubled. Now this is absolutely incredible because we are listening in on a Trinitarian conversation. God the Son, in a moment of crisis, is crying out and talking to God the Father, and God the Father is talking back. And we get to listen in on this conversation. In fact, Jesus says, this is all for our benefit. And it all begins with Jesus saying, my soul is troubled. Now, we talked about that word troubled a while back when we were in John 11. Jesus' friend, Lazarus, had died, and standing outside the tomb with his two sisters, Martha and Mary, the text says, Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit, and he was greatly troubled. And now here in John 12, Jesus is staring his own death in the face, and he's days away from his own death, and he says, my soul is troubled And interestingly enough, in the next chapter, in John 13, at his last Passover supper, Jesus is talking with his disciples, and he directly, indirectly, exposes Judas as a traitor, and we read, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Three times John tells us that Jesus' soul is troubled. John 11, John 12, John 13, and this should cause us pause. I mean, if you think about what we've seen as we've studied the life of Jesus in the Gospel of John, we have seen Jesus' great power on display in signs and wonders and great miracles. We have heard him teach with great authority. We have witnessed him fearlessly going toe-to-toe with people who want him dead. And then in John 11, we've seen the tender, caring side of Jesus as he wept with Mary at Lazarus' tomb. But Jesus is saying something here that should really get our attention. Now, the word uh, that Jesus uses, the Greek word is for troubled, is the word terazo, which basically means revulsion or horror. And Jesus is saying, my soul is horrified by what I'm facing. My soul is horrified at what's coming. This is a side of Jesus we haven't seen before, and I think it's a side of Jesus that's kind of hard for us to understand. In fact, in thinking about this during my study, I thought about the old uh, worship song, Here I Am to Worship, and in that song, there's a bridge that says, I'll never know how much it cost." to see my sin upon that cross. You remember that? That's so true. We'll never know how much it costs God the Father and God the Son to forgive our sins. But we can learn here in verse 27 what the cost was like for Jesus. He is deeply disturbed, horrified at what he's facing. Now, by the way, do you realize what a comfort that is? Have you ever been uh, Troubled and horrified, deep in your soul, as you look ahead to what's coming, Jesus understands and knows a troubled soul. He really does understand when your your soul is troubled and horrified at what you're facing. He knows, and He's with you in that. Uh, Now, when we find ourselves in that place, what we want is relief. And we try to figure out a way out of the problem, a way around the problem. We pray and ask God to remove the trouble that troubles us. Uh, The pain, the discomfort, the possibility that life as we have known it is about to end. That's how we deal with our troubled souls. But Jesus doesn't do that. Now, in fact, I think uh, if we were to finish the words of this verse with our own words, we would say something like, uh, God, now is my soul troubled? I can't take it anymore, I give up. God, oh God, rescue me, save me from this trouble, right? Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong to pray that way. I mean, not at all. But sometimes, if after praying for relief and rescue uh, for a long time, if nothing happens, maybe the way we should begin to pray is, God, uh, my soul is troubled at what? I'm facing, please give me the grace and the strength I need to walk the path before me. And that's essentially what Jesus is saying when he continues in verse 27. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. For this purpose I have come to this hour. He knows what God has sent him to do. He knows what has to happen for God to accomplish his purposes through him. He knows that in order to open the door of salvation to all people, in order to draw all people to himself, he has to walk through the blood-splattered door of the cross. Now, this is important. His soul is not troubled because he fears the physical pain and suffering of death. Of course, he's not looking forward to pain and suffering, but it's not just the physical suffering that he dreads. No, he's horrified by the fact that to accomplish our salvation, he will have to bear the full weight of our sin on the cross. He will have to bear the full weight of God's wrath towards sin, our sin on that cross. And it horrifies him to think that in that moment, the Father will have to turn his back on him and he will not know the intimacy with the Father that he's known in eternity and all of his life on earth. He knows all of that. He's horrified by the thought of that, but still he is determined to walk the path before him for us. I mean, do you see the glory in what Jesus is about to do for you? He's horrified, but he's resolute, unwavering in his commitment to the Father's will to rescue us from the coming judgment of God. And I know we can't fully understand, but do you see? Do you feel the weight, the awe, the eternal beauty, the immeasurable world-changing significance about what Jesus resolves to do for you by dying in your place on that cross? I'm not asking if you know the, know it in your head, but have you experienced what he did for you? Has it ever left you breathless? Has it ever caused you to shake your head in wonder and awe? He resolves. He's hor- horrified, but he's resolute. He resolves to go to the cross for us. Now, look at his re- resolve. Verse 28, Jesus says, Father... Glorify your name. Now, you know what he's saying? He's saying, Father, I'm horrified by what's coming, but I want you to receive glory through my death. Father, what I want more than anything else is for you to receive glory. Bring glory to yourself through the glory of my death. Did you catch that? I want you, Father, to bring glory to yourself through the glory of my My death. And so he's saying, Father, uh, what matters most to me is that you show the world how loving you are, that you show the world how just and holy you are through my death for sin. Listen, in and only in the cross do you see God's justice and his love glorified at the same time. In and only in the cross does God show himself as a just and holy God because the penalty of our sin was paid for by Jesus, our substitute, on the cross. And in and only in the cross does God show you how loving he is in that he does not punish us for our sin, but he takes his penalty for our sins on himself in order to draw you to himself. And when you stand at the Grand Canyon and you gasp for breath, when you watch Michael Jordan jump in slow motion from the three, uh, free throw line and slam dunk that ball and you shake your head in unbelief, <laughs> but oh, when, when you understand what God the Father did for you through God the Son on the cross, it does something to you that's, that's far deeper, far more profound than anything in this world. There is no human glory, there is no earthly glory that even compares. I, I, I'm just not doing this justice. I, I mean, to talk about the glory of God, to try to put the glory of God into words is it's a pretty hopeless thing. Because when you try to pour the glory of God into words, it's a little bit like trying to pour uh, Lake Michigan into a thimble. Words just can't carry the weight of the glory of God. When the Bible talks about the glory of God, it doesn't mean that God is, 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 just mean that he's holy, that he's loving, or let's just go beyond those things, that he's wise, that he's strong. No, when the Bible talks about the glory of God, when Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name, he's praying, when I am crucified on that cross, Father, show the world that in your holiness and in your love and in your wisdom and in your strength show the world that you are great and good and beautiful beyond comparison. Let me put it this way. God isn't just beautiful. He is glorious in his beauty. And that means his beauty is so much greater than any other beauty that by comparison all other beauties are hideous. To talk about the glory of God means that God isn't just great. It means all other greatnesses compared to his greatness are total failures. Next to his goodness, all other kinds of goodness are filthy rags. Next to his love, all other loves never satisfied. Imagine you have a scale and you have two trays on the scale. On one side, you put two dimes, and on the other side, you drop an 18-wheeler tractor-trailer. <laughs> now, what happens when you compare those two things? One tray slams uh, to the ground. The other tray shoots up in the air. Now, I know that's, this is a crazy illustration, but just stay with me. Would it make any difference to the scale if there were no dimes there at all? Well, no, of course not, because the glory of the 18-wheeler truck is so much greater than the dimes that the dimes carry no weight at all. And God's glory compared to any human glory or earthly glory is like that. God's glory is absolute. There's no love but his love, no justice but his justice, no greatness but his greatness, no wisdom but his wisdom, no beauty but his wisdom. You see that? So here's my point. My first point, the glory of the cross shows us the glory of God. The glory of the cross shows us the glory of God. Now, yes, I know Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. Yes, the stars declare the glory of God. The Grand Canyon shows you the glory of God. But the cross, the cross shows you more of God's glory then all of the stars and all the mountains and all human achievement, all created things are dimes on the scale with our 18-wheeler God. And nothing glorifies the name of God like the cross. Why? Because, as Tim Keller puts it, only the cross shows you a God so holy that he had to die and so loving that he was glad to die. uh, Only the cross shows you of God who's so holy he had to die, but so loving he was glad to die. That's the glory of the cross. The glory of the cross shows us what God is really like, a God so holy that he had to die for us, or we would be lost forever. And so loving he was glad to die for us at the cost of his own life. And that is what God the Father proclaims in a, loud, in a loud voice that sounded like thunder to all who heard it. Verse 28, then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said it sounded like thunder. Others said it sounded like an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now this is one of three occasions that are recorded for us in the Gospels when the Father speaks from heaven. The first we see in Luke chapter 3 at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry at his baptism. The father says, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Then the father speaks again from heaven in Luke 9 in the middle of Jesus' ministry at Jesus' transfiguration. And God says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And here in verse 30 at the very end of Jesus' public ministry, Jesus affirms the voice of the father when he says... This voice has come for your sake, not mine. And even though these people do not have eyes to hear or eyes to see and ears to hear this completely, we should understand this voice from heaven as the Father once again putting his stamp of approval on his Son. But but what does it mean? I have glorified it and I will glorify it. Just this. The Father says, Son... I have been glorified in your life, and now I will be glorified in your death for sin. Uh, son, I, will, I have been glorified in your life, and now I will be glorified in your death uh, for sin. And with that, Jesus begins to speak to the crowd more specifically about how the cross will bring the Father glory. Again, what's that mean? Uh, To bring glory to the Father means to show the world what God is really like. To show us how good and great and holy and loving and beautiful God really is. To show us how no earthly glory, no human glory, compares to the glory of God in the cross of Christ. So the first point is the glory of the cross shows us the glory of God. The second point is going to tell us how the Father is glorified in the cross. So my second point is this. Three things happen on the cross that show us the glory of God. Three things happen on the cross that show us just how good and great and loving and holy God really is. And I'm going to tell you what they are up front in this passage, and then we're going to talk about them. So here are the three things. On the cross, the world is judged, the, Satan is defeated, and all people are now invited back into a relationship with God. On the cross, as a result of the cross, the world is judged, Satan is defeated, and all people are now invited into a relationship with God. We see the glory of God in the cross of Christ because in the cross, The world is judged, Satan is defeated, and all people are invited back into a relationship with God. So let's look at it. Number one, the world is judged. Verse 31, Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now, if you're a Bible student and you're still tuned in and thinking, you may be thinking, now wait a minute. Didn't Jesus say somewhere that he didn't come to judge the world? Yes, he said that to Nicodemus back in chapter 3, verse 17. He said, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, to judge the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And in fact, if you read ahead, Jesus says it again down in verse 47 here in chapter 12. He says, and it can't be any more plain than this, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So how does all that fit? I mean, is this uh, one of those contradictions that people point to when they claim that the Bible is full of contradictions? Now, there's no contradiction here. Look at what is actually being said in verse 47. Jesus says, in verse 47, he says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Here, Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. And here's how it all fits together. Jesus will die on the cross to save us from our sins. To save all those who come to him by faith. All those who do not put their faith in Jesus stand under, remain under the judgment of God. You see, the cross is the great dividing line for human history. From the cross forward, people are judged by what they do with Jesus. So let me put it this way. God sent Jesus to save the world from God's judgment, meaning God will deal with and ultimately dismantle the presence of evil in the world, and that dismantling began at the cross. So Jesus didn't come to bring judgment. He came to save those who are under judgment. Now, he states that clearly in John chapter 5, verse 24. Uh, four. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. The one that hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now, to be saved from judgment also means to be saved from death and, and, and to be saved to eternal life through Uh, his death and resurrection, Jesus would defeat death with his own death. So we can now live as the people of life, living in the light of his love. So first of all, we see the light of the glory of God in the cross of Christ because through the cross, Jesus saves those who are under the judgment of God. Our salvation comes through judgment. So on the cross, through judgment, sin Uh, and death are defeated but that's not all that's defeated sin and death and hell are defeated look at number two here satan is defeated verse 31 now will the ruler of this world be cast out on the cross jesus won the decisive victory over sin and death and hell by kicking satan the former ruler of this world off his throne now follow the flow of thought here Jesus says, my hour has come. The hour for which I have come is the cross. The purpose for which I have come is the cross. The glory of the Father will be revealed in the cross. How so? Because now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And it is through the judgment of the world and through casting the ruler of this world out which I'm gonna come back to in just a minute, but stay with me, hold on. But number one and number two lead to the third reason that the Father is glorified through the cross, and that is that through the cross, all people are now invited back into a relationship with God. Number three, all people are now invited. Jesus says, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself, and he said this to show by what kind of death he would die, death on a cross, meaning he will be lifted up on a cross to die, which, verse 34, we see nobody in the crowd could understand. And they ask a question that Jesus totally ignores, so I'm just going to ignore it as well. (laughs) Let me give you a big idea. We see the glory of the cross. uh, We see the glory of God in the cross of Christ, Because in the cross of Christ, the world is judged, Satan is defeated, and all people are invited back into a relationship with God. Now, I know, I hear you. I mean, you're saying, but Charlie, I'm still stuck on number two. I mean, how has Satan been cast out if he's still a roaring lion prowling around seeking people to devour? I mean, we all know Satan is alive and well, and there's still a spiritual battle raging. Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 6. And we know from what Paul says in in Corinthians that Satan is still blinding the minds of those who believe not. So how has Satan been cast out? How has Satan been dethroned? Okay, uh, time out. Push pause right here. I'm going to explain what Jesus means when he says the ruler of this world is cast out through a short story that I have written. And this story... We'll connect what Jesus says right here about the ruler of this world being cast out and the world being judged and all people being drawn to himself with what he says at the very end of this passage when he says, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk in the light while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. How does that fit with everything that he's been saying? Sounds like a new topic. Well, it's not. Light and darkness is a huge idea in the gospel of John and in his letters But we see the theme of light and darkness beginning in chapter 1, and it shows up again in chapter 3, chapter 8, chapter 9, and here in chapter 12. So I'm going to read this story that incorporates the theme of light and darkness that ties the glory to what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross with what he says in verses 35 to 36 to walk in the light while you still have the light. Stay with me, I, I, I think it'll all come together in the end, or at least I hope so. In the beginning, always a good way to start a story, in the beginning, God created humans and he closed them, clothed them in light. Brilliant, blazing light. And all was good in God's kingdom of light and all people, and it was good with all the people who walked in his light. But after a while, the tempter came and convinced the first of God's people that living in the darkness of their own will and desires, was much better than living in the light of God's love. So they did the one thing, the only thing that God told them not to do. They ate the fruit of the forbidden tree of the knowledge of light and darkness. And immediately their light went out. Immediately they came under the rule of the tempter, the prince of darkness, They felt the shame of being naked and lightless. The whole world was plunged into darkness, the darkness of rebellion against the God of light. And generation after generation and after generation, the darkness grew in in the violence and injustice, in the oppression and deceit, dishonesty, immorality, arrogance, racism, and death that characterized the living death of the tempter's shadowy kingdom. So what would become of God's kingdom of light and all the good he had planned for his children? Had God forever given up on the people that he created? Not at all. Going all the way back to when the first people stepped out of the light and into darkness, God, by his grace, gave them a flicker of light and promised them that one day the light of the world would come and set all things right again. So that light, that hope, was passed from one generation to the next, until finally God called out one man, Abraham, and God promised him that through him and his descendants, the light would come. Abraham's people were called the Jews. They were to be the light bearers. The nation of Israel would be a light to all the nations, because All the other nations were still under the power and rule of the prince of darkness. So there was an ongoing battle between the children of light and the children of darkness. Sadly, many times the light bearers gave in to the tempter's age-old schemes. They hid their light and lived in darkness. But God, by his grace, disciplined them and rescued them and brought them back into the light. But eventually they became proud that they alone were the light bearers And rather than being a light to the nations, they just condemned the nations for living in darkness. And then it happened. The light of the world came from heaven into this world. And he preached and taught people, uh, God's people, what life in the kingdom of light was like. He opened blind eyes to show people that he had the power to give light to all who came to him. He set people free Uh, from the bondage to dark powers to show them that he alone had the power of light over darkness. And he even raised people from the darkness of death and restored them to the light of life. The light had a name, and his name was Jesus. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. The one who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I mean, how could it be more plain than that? Many people saw the light of Jesus, and they believed in him, and they followed him, but most did not. One of Jesus' disciples named John put it this way, the true light, which gives light to everyone, came into the world, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The war with the powers of darkness raged. It seemed that the tempter had won again. The religious leaders arrogantly declared, we will not have this man rule over us. So Jesus was arrested, falsely accused. He was nailed to a Roman cross. And the day that the light went out, it seemed that the prince of darkness had secured his rule over the world forever. But on that cross, the darkness of sin and death were defeated. On that cross, judgment came upon all those who reject the light and continue to live in darkness. And on that cross, the ruler of this dark world was dethroned. He could no longer hold the nations captive in his darkness. And three days later, the light shined brightly again. The apostle Paul put it this way as he invited people from the nations outside of Israel to come to God's light. He said, for the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has made his light to shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Jesus. So now all people from all nations, can come to the light. All people can be drawn to the light, and they can become light in this dark world, not because of their national heritage or ethnic group, not through temples or priests or rituals. No, anyone and everyone, anywhere and everywhere, can come into God's kingdom of light by believing that Jesus is the light by believing that Jesus can rescue them from the darkness of their sin and guilt and shame. Listen to Jesus' words again. Verse 35. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become the sons of light, Verse 45, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Now, here's the bottom line. Through the cross, all people are now invited back into a relationship with God, and that means that you are invited, and that means that you have to choose. It means that you have to make a decision And what Jesus is saying here is that you don't have all the time in the world to make that decision. So if you feel God drawing you to Jesus, then your time is now. Go to Jesus. Run to him. Trust in him. Tell him you don't want to live in the darkness anymore. Tell him you you, you need him and you want him to rescue you from your sin and your guilt and your shame and your self-sufficiency that you Now, see, it's just all darkness and it's not working for you. And you can do that now. Or you can do that later by yourself when you're alone by yourself. But if you feel Jesus drawing you to himself, if you see the glory of this story, then tell Jesus that you're done with darkness. Tell him that you're trusting him to to forgive your sins and to give you life and to save you from God's judgment And when you come into the light, you begin to see God and yourself and everything else the way God sees. Now, let me close with this. I want to go back to something I said at the beginning when I said all this talk about glory has tremendous relevance in our daily life. Uh, When I said everybody is seeking glory, everybody wants to matter, they want to matter to someone. Now, do you know the difference what, you know, do you know what the difference is between Christians and non-Christians? Christians are people who, when they see the beauty of what Christ did for them on the cross, they find they can never get over it. They can never get over it. Jesus says, if you see the depth of your sin, the magnitude of the holiness of God, the power of his justice, and the depth of his love, if you see if you see the magnitude of my sacrifice and what I have done for you, if you really see that, if you really experience that, if you begin to glory in that, you will find the fact that I died for you will become the most important thing about you. And it, the cross, will shape your life. It will move you to worship. It will move you to make different decisions. It will move you to take different actions. You will live in the light of the knowledge of the glory of God as seen in the face of Jesus and in the work of Jesus, and you will see things differently, and you will experience things differently. Look, why are you afraid? You're afraid because you're treating certain things which are light as weighty, and you're making light of that which is heavy. Why are you angry? Why do you feel so guilty? It's all the same. You have ordered your life around dimes instead of God's 18-wheeler glory. If you see God as glorious as he really is, then all uh, then then you will see all the other things as they really are. It's just all dimes which you have to deal with. I mean, you have to give attention to those things. I mean, there are bills to pay and mouths to feed and, and there's what to wear and where to live and what you write. And sure, you have to manage all the dimes in your life. But instead of giving ourselves at most importance and our needs utmost importance and our desires at most importance, if we give God's desires and his will supreme importance, if we give him the glory that he deserves, then we will finally get the glory we've always wanted. When you stop seeking your own glory and you seek his glory only, you finally get glory. You finally experience glory because the cross shows you that you matter, that you matter to someone. You matter to God. You matter to the only one who really matters. Now, how good is that? Here's how Tim Keller puts it, and I'm, I paraphrased and edited it a little bit, but he says a Christian is not just a moralist, not just a religious person. No, a Christian is somebody who's been attracted to the glory of what Jesus had done for them on the cross and who weighs it against everything else, and it, the gospel, becomes the most important fact about them. More important than the fact of my success and all my achievements, more important than the fact of my failures. More important than the fact that I didn't get into the school I hoped to get into. More important than the fact that I'm not in the job that I really wanted. More important uh, than than the fact that my health might be declining. Uh, A true follower of Jesus is somebody who's been drawn to the glory of what Jesus has done for them, and they weigh that fact against all the other important things in their life. But the glory of the cross outweighs them all. Nothing else comes close. I love how the Apostle Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. This is from the old King James. He says, But God forbid that I should glory in anything but the cross of Christ, by whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. The Bible says, When you see, the glory of God. When you glory in the glory of God instead of trying to meet your needs, then your needs will be met. If you come to God to get your needs met, trying to use Him to make all of your 10 cent wishes come true, you get nothing. So give God the glory, the weight the supreme importance that he deserves. Make the cross of Christ your highest glory and you'll finally get the glory you've always wanted. Would you you close your eyes and just bow your head and I'm gonna pray a prayer and would you just pray it line for line after me if this prayer expresses the desire of your heart. Father, glorify yourself in and through my life. Father, your glory is my glory. Jesus, your cross is my glory. Holy Spirit, show me what must change in my life that the light of your glory shines through me. Father, your glory is my glory. Jesus, your cross is my glory. Holy Spirit, show me what must change in my life so the light of your glory shines through me. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.